Hello again, everyone. This is Trex in Sci-Fi, show number 31 for March the 5th, 2006. We got a, quite a bit to talk about this week, uh, some old TV shows of the past to look at, along with a collectible from a friend and a few other tidbits, so uh, let's get started. Trex in Sci-Fi... Scotty, beat me up. Fascinating. Stand by to receive our transmission. Well, hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome again uh, everyone uh, listening to Treks and Sci-Fi. You found the geekiest, trekkiest, sci-fi-ish podcast on the net. Uh, This is your host, Rico, and yes, I have a cold. For people that uh, know my voice from previous podcasts, uh, the last couple of days I wasn't feeling that great, but this this cold hit me, I guess, Thursday, Friday this past week, something like that, so I'm going to try to get through the podcast. You know, I I, I know everyone out there, uh, you know, they, they... really would miss the show if I delayed it a week and I'm not feeling that bad right now it's um it's not too bad I got a thing of Gatorade some Jolly Ranchers here to keep me company while I do the show might take a few more breaks during the podcast so I can uh, get a drink but uh, we'll see how things go this has been a uh, fairly busy week for me and uh, I'm kind of looking forward to doing the show been thinking about a lot of what to what to talk about this week I'm like I announced at the end of last week's show last weekend's show, I should say. I'm planning on talking about uh, some science fiction slash slash fantasy, excuse me, slash fantasy, slash sort of imaginative type television shows of the past. And like I did uh, for the podcast where I went through this kind of thing before and talked about four or five shows from favorites of mine from the past, I'm kind of going to spread out across the decades, starting with an older show and working more up towards the present with some newer stuff. Some of these shows, and, and probably most of them, most of the people that listen to this podcast have, have heard of before and have probably seen quite a bit of, of these episodes and, and shows. This uh, this particular group that I've selected is probably a little more well-known than some of the couple of the shows that I talked about on the last, last time I did this type of a podcast where I talked about a couple of lesser-known shows that didn't have a lot of episodes I think the ones I'm going to I pick for this time are a little more mainstream to a degree, but still things that I enjoy, and for the younger listeners, things that you may not have ever seen that are also, you know, with the advent of all these DVD box sets of past television shows, are, are most of these are available right now at your local Best Buy or online, Amazon, those kind of places, so it, it's a good time, I think, to bring up these, these television, shows, television shows from the past. Now, the, uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is, is just a couple of quick emails, actually one primarily, which is an audio commentary from uh, one of our listeners. This, uh, this comes to us from uh, D. Beish. I think I'm pronouncing your name again, or this time correctly, D. He's D on the forums for uh, treksf.com. And I mentioned, uh, I think, on one of the last shows, either last week's or maybe the middle of the week's show, I'm not sure which one it was, but gentleman named uh, an actor named Paul Carr who played Lieutenant Lee Kelso on the pilot episode of the original series Where No Man Has Gone Before passed away a couple of weeks back and Dee had had the privilege of meeting uh, this this wonderful actor that had done many television movie appearances over the years he met him at a convention a few years back and he sent a really nice audio commentary about uh, his uh, remembrance of, of Paul Carr and I'm just going to let D take over here, and I'll play D's comment now, and you can listen to this. And it's uh, a fitting tribute to to a great actor who will be missed. As Rick mentioned last week, February saw the passing of Paul Carr, whom Trek fans would immediately recognize as Lieutenant Lee Kelso. 
from where no man has gone before. If you were a kid growing up during the first 40 or so years of television, chances are you saw Paul in something, whether it was Mannix, The Incredible Hulk, or Buck Rogers in the 25th century, because the man pretty much did it all. I met Paul at the Shore Leave Convention in 2001. Shore Leave is an annual convention which is fan-run and is held near Baltimore. He was one of the masquerade judges, and as we found out the following morning, a big fan of Vegas acts. My friends and I had performed as the Blue Borg group, uh, a riff on the Blue Man group, and he was very, very pleased to see it as we found out he really enjoyed it and clearly his influence had uh, some bearing on the uh, on the judging as we went on to take best in show that night so that was pretty cool i still have the video from the from that night and he's looking very pleased as we present a box of captain crunch cereal to him which as you if if you don't know it's the nutritional staple of uh, the blue man group anyway uh the following morning i saw him at his table and uh went to go get an autographed picture and as he signed it we talked for a bit about his career and how i have seen him pretty much in everything that i ever watched it seemed uh logan's run the series hawaii 50 mannix uh six million dollar man pretty much if i watched it he had been in at least an episode i think i'll remember him best as being the consummate gentleman with an always ready smile on his face Unfortunately, we lost Paul on February 17th, mere days after his 72nd birthday. He wasn't a leading man, but he was a very talented one, and Hollywood has lost genuinely one of its most talented performers with the loss of Paul. Farewell, my friend. Thanks uh, Thanks very much for that uh, very nice commentary, D really appreciate that uh you know these it's it's interesting that there are so many uh really wonderful character actors i, I don't know if that's the right terminology to use <clears throat> excuse me but um in in star trek and all the all the star trek series maybe more in the original series but these actors that have shown up actors and actresses that have shown up in, in a lot of different television shows over the years up and through present time, I mean, if you if you go into the you know internet movie database IMDb and type in some of the names of of some of the guest stars of some of the older TV shows like Star Trek and Twilight Zone and those kind of things, you you find that these these actors they they ended up in in just hundreds and hundreds of appearances over the years, which which I think shows a lot of uh, range and talent that they had. And it's it's interesting that actually, in a way, some of the guest stars and some of the secondary actors and characters on the original series ended up being able to go on and do a lot of other things and a lot of other television and movies, maybe even a, in a way more so than the principal uh, characters that were on on the on the show. You know, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy excuse me, those people they had you know, great careers, but there was sort of a, a pigeonholing, especially for the, you know, the characters of like Jimmy Dewin and, and George Decay and, and those people that really had a difficult time finding work uh, post-Star Trek. So it's it's kind of, you know, the, there's the top of the chain, I guess, there there's the just below the top of the chain, and then there's, there's below that a little bit. And sometimes you're better off to not really be at the very top. So I don't know exactly what brought that on, but hey, you know, sometimes my mind works in strange ways, especially when when hopped up on cold medicine. So, so anyway, well, let's go on to. Uh, I've got one other audio commentary uh, from an email uh, from another listener, a new listener. Well, I don't think he's really a new listener. This is from uh, a listener named Mark Pinheiro. I'm, I'm hoping I'm not slaughtering that name too bad, Mark. But he has a, uh, it's a, it's a fairly lengthy audio comment, but I, I'm going to play it all. And it's um, it's about a uh, commentary on the, the Trouble with Tribbles and uh, of someone who's trying to, or had tried to make a business out of selling Tribbles. But I'll let Mark uh, listen, or listen, excuse me, losing it. Uh, I'll let Mark ta- tell you all about that. So here we go. Greetings to Rico and all the fine listeners of Treks in Sci-Fi. I wanted to share a few 
comic and tragic memories of Star Trek that I have, and they have to do with Tribbles. In 1976, I believe, a little corner shop opened in Nutley, New Jersey called the Starfleet Outpost. It was started and run by two Vietnam vets who were very heavily into Star Trek and science fiction and comics. And at the age of 16, so was I. In fact, I, I was their triple supplier. I was always pretty mechanically inclined. I had made all the models, but I'd never tried my hand at sewing. And odd as it seemed to me, I actually got hold of some fake fur. And I learned to stitch the thing shut without uh, showing the seam. I even figured out how to put little noisemakers in them. Uh, the type, the cylinder type that have holes in the end. They make a kind of moo sound when you turn them over. So I stitched those into my dribbles. Maybe a couple with little squeakers. But anyway, they bought them from me for about three bucks a piece. And then sold them for five or seven, something like that. Well, that year, there was a major Star Trek event happening in New York called the Bicentennial 10. Star Trek Bicentennial 10. The United States was 200 years old, and Star Trek was 10 years old, and we were looking forward to it quite a bit. My friends and I went, and I brought a big pillowcase of my noise-making tribbles. Now, this convention had a few pretty famous guests lined up, and a part of the celebrity lineup were David Gerald and Stanley Adams. Now, David Gerald was spending, uh, spending some time in the dealer ballroom signing autographs, and selling his own exclusive, officially licensed Tribbles. Now they were, it's sad to say, but they were pretty poor. The fur was short, it was the wrong color on some of them, and they all had clearly visible seams. It was sad. But anyway, I was about 20 feet away. I was just walking around with an armload of my own Tribbles. And I was eyeing some merchandise. And, uh, I don't know, I think I was leaning over some poster table, and I suddenly, accidentally, let one fall onto the table that I was leaning over, and it made a little moo noise. Well, the merchant practically grabbed me by the shirt and pulled me over the table saying, Where did you get those? Uh, long story short, he bought more than half my supply. I kept some for myself just to walk around with, and I was kind of glad I did because at another point in the convention, of course, they had panels and seminars set up, and in one of the rooms I made it to the front row for a question-and-answer panel that Stan Adams was on. And Stan Adams, in case... Folks don't know, he's the actor who played Cyrano Jones. During a lull in the interchange between hands up and answering questions, there was a moment of silence, and I turned one of the tribbles again, and with no one else talking, it sounded quite loud. And without missing a beat, Mr. Adams looked over to where I was sitting, and he said, I think that means it has to go. And he laughed, and I laughed, and the audience laughed, and, you know. It's a little thing, but it's stuff like that that you just take with you forever. Well, I was really sad to be, uh, hear about his tragic end, but he certainly brightened the life of millions with his one portrayal of Cyrano Jones. And there's one other kind of sad note that goes along with the story. It's not as tragic as, as uh, Stan Adams, but it's still really kind of sad. These two poor guys who started the Starfleet Outpost had to shut it down and go out of business because they just couldn't make enough and keep operating by selling Star Trek and science fiction merchandise. And that was only six months before Star Wars hit the theaters. Well, at any rate, thank you for listening. I hope this wasn't too long. And keep up the exceptional work. You're certainly sparking a lot of fond memories in us classic Star Trek fans from long ago. And you're introducing a new generation to just how epic and fine the whole Star Trek universe is. Thank you again. Well, thanks very much for that uh, comment, Mark. I really appreciate it. Now, uh, like I did, uh, that, that's about it, I think, for email and, and audio commentary. There are a couple, one or two other emails, and I'm going to talk about one towards the end of the show about a collectible that a, that a nice listener sent to me. But uh, we're going to get into the main section for this uh, podcast for the week, which is about old science fiction fantasy television shows. Now, the previous time I did this, I started off with a uh, Partridge Family song to kind of set the mood for the era and the time a little bit. I've got another song. I'm going to play a piece of this uh, to set the, that the mood of the of that time frame. The first show we're going to look at is is set in the early 1960s, or or was that's when it was first aired. So we'll play a, a bit of this song to get you in the mood uh, for uh, looking back in the past. So here we go.
Okay, so how many people out there、uh, recognize that song? It's,、uh, it's by a woman named Leslie Gore, and the name of the song is called California Nights. Yeah, that,、uh, that song bring, brings back a lot of fond memories for me. I, I spent some time when I was young growing up out in California, and you know, the ocean and the surf and the sun, it, it really brings back some fond memories for me growing up out there on the West Coast. For that period of time. And that, you know, that was the time that I first got really interested in a lot of science fiction on television, Star Trek,、uh, reruns of some of the shows we're going to be talking about、uh, right now. So that、uh, it really sets the mood for me listening to that song or, or part of that song. Actually, that,、uh, that particular piece she sang in an episode of the old 1960s、um, Batman series where she played a, a little henchman.、Uh, Henchwoman, or whatever, of Catwoman in an episode where they sort of、uh, brainwashed the boy Wonder to be one of、uh, the sidekicks of Catwoman, also. But Leslie Gore played,、uh, I think her name was Pussycat or something like that, if I remember correct. And、uh, she kind of had a thing for Robin on that show. So, But we're not really talking, we're not going to be talking about Batman or the, the Adam Westbert Ward Batman for,、uh, for this week's podcast. That's not the first show that I'd like to talk about, but. The first one is I'm going to play the theme song like I did for these shows to kind of get you in the, in the mood and let you think about what show it is that I'm going to be speaking of. But the first one here is from that time frame in the early 1960s. It's a very classic science fiction series, and it,、uh, it's still being viewed quite a bit today in reruns on television, DVD sets that are out. So,、uh, well, I'll play the theme song to the show. This one, it kind of, if you know the show, it gives the. Gives the show away, excuse me, real easily, but I think it's,、uh, it's, a, it's a cool theme, and、uh, I'm going to play it for you right now. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Yes, that,、uh, that's the theme song to The Outer Limits. We're not talking about the, the modernized versions of it, which they've done a few, few versions on television. No, this is the,、uh, the show, the original The Outer Limits, that premiered in, 1960, in the fall of 1963. It only ran for actually two seasons on, on the air, and it was, it was really a, a kind of a, almost a, the other net, another network's alternative to the Twilight Zone series. I keep,、uh, excuse me, I'm losing my train of thought for a second. The, I was thinking of talking about the Twilight Zone, but actually, I think I might save that for one podcast on its own because it's such a classic. And The Outer Limits is actually too, but 
this this show, The Outer Limits, if for those that have are not really familiar with it, was a very Twilight Zone-ish type uh, TV show. This was an anthology-based television show where each week for, for an hour compared to The Twilight Zone, which were Twilight Zone primarily were half-hour shows, they did do, I think, one short season in The Twilight Zone of an hour-long show. But The, the Outer Limits was, uh, I guess in a way, a little bit more elaborate. They were hour-long episodes. They, 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 of course, featured lots of science fiction fantasy elements. And there was a little more, I think, of a, a psychological uh, twist or bent to a lot of the Outer Limits episodes. There were, there were things that happened uh, that were, were a lot more uh, about what people were thinking and how they were, re- how they were reacting to certain situations that were going on around them. Sometimes the Twilight Zone was a, was a little more straightforward. Um, not sure if I'm explaining this correctly, but if you're familiar with the show, you'll, you, I think you'll know what I'm talking about. But the, you know, the stories were, were really, really interesting. Uh, there were, there wasn't with the, like the Twilight Zone always tended to have that little twist at the end. They didn't really do that so much on on the Outer Limits. It was a little more straightforward. I mean, sometimes it would happen, sometimes it wouldn't. Uh, the, the one reason, uh, that I wanted to talk about this series is that you can really, uh, pick up uh, real real inexpensively the DVDs of Season 1 and Season 2 of the Outer Limit show uh, pretty easily now for in the $30 to $40 range, I believe, online. I just picked up the second season of it. Uh, the seasons are rather long, actually. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but I think they're 30-some they're episodes each. So you get you get a lot of episodes for your money with um, these some of these older shows, more than these days are, which... You know, you're lucky if you get a 20, 22 or so episodes per season out there. So I'm going to get a drink. Ah, that's uh, that's better. Um, but The Outer Limits, it was showing, uh, it showed on ABC. Again, it started in 1963, ended in early 1965. It is sometimes rerun on syndication. It's on a rerun on the Sci-Fi Channel. And again, the DVD sets are available. There were guest stars, a lot of... A lot of um, familiar faces on this show just like twilight zone had william shatner did a couple of them i think leonard nimoy did um one i think at least and and just uh, a big big range of actors people that you'll uh you'll recognize robert culp uh there people you'll recognize from television and movies these days that ended up on some of these uh, some of these shows at of that time so that uh so that's the outer limits. I don't even. It's it's difficult to sum up, you know, these shows in a few minutes. But it it's uh, it you know there are shows uh, or certain episodes, excuse me, of the outer limits that are better than others. But some of them are just completely classic uh, tales, written by a lot of great science fiction authors. So I highly highly recommend if you've if you've very you know if you've never seen it, of course, or even if you only slightly you know, maybe caught an episode or two, I really recommend, you know, go to Netflix, uh, Blockbuster, rent a couple if you're not sure about buying the whole sets, and, and check out The Outer Limits. Uh, I don't think you'll, if you really like science fiction, fantasy type television, I, I definitely think you'll you'll be pleased with, uh, with this series. So check out The Outer Limits. Really, really a cool, cool science fiction show from the early 1960s. This show is part of the Out of This World Entertainment on the Sci-Fi Podcast Network, tsfpn.com. Okay, now the next uh, next show. This one uh, was was a very popular uh, show of a, a little bit later in the '60s that came out. Now this uh, this show was probably in a way a direct competitor to Star Trek, uh, the original Star Trek series, and you know. For that reason, I think, you know, sometimes people think of this as sort of a, a, a kiddie show or a kiddie version of a science fiction show. But I, I think they're uh, they're missing some of the uh, the really good qualities of it. And, and I'll talk about it again in a minute here. But first, I'm going to play uh, the theme song to um, to this series. Now, I think I'm going to play, yeah, I'm going to play the, this uh, television show was lasted for three seasons. And I actually like the theme song from the third season the best, even though that wasn't the best season. So we'll play that, and then I'll come back and talk about it. So here's the theme to our next uh, television show. (laughs) ¶¶ 
for uh, the real sci-fi fans out there, you may have recognized that theme. Yes, this is that was the third season third season theme song to Lost in Space. Yes, Lost in Space. Warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson. All that stuff. Uh, the robot, Doctor Smith. Uh, Will Robinson, Penny Robinson, you know, Judy, uh, Don West, all those cool guys. And uh, this show started in the fall of 1965, September 1965, on CBS. And this show starts, so this show was on a full year before the original Star Trek series. And the the first season of this of this series was in black and white. This, the subsequent two seasons were in color. And it basically, you know, told the tale of the, the, the sort of the Swiss family Robinson tale. But, you know, they were also called the Robinsons, but they were going to be launched into space to search for a new habitable world for for Earth. It starts out that um, the premise is that Earth is becoming very, very overpopulated and the resources and between uh, lack of resources, natural resources and overpopulation, we need to, you know, get off the earth and find another place that people can live. And so they send out this family that's been selected, uh, you know, through a big selection process of a lot of different candidates of families to be the the kind of the ultimate spacefaring family that can survive out there and handle anything that happens. The What happens, though, is that there's a stowaway aboard the ship, uh, which is Dr. Smith, and he reprograms the robot, to, to try to destroy the Jupiter 2, which is their ship, on their first maiden voyage. Well, Dr. Smith ends up ge- getting stuck on the Jupiter 2 and goes along for the ride. The, the thing I wanted to say here, though, and people that are familiar with Lost in Space will understand this more, the, the early season, the first season especially, that was in black and white, w- was a really high adventure, science fiction, and, and, and really big, big show. It was done by Irwin Allen who did a lot of disaster tales of that time, Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno. And, you know, this was his television project, his TV. He uh, he worked on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Time Tunnel, lots of properties of that era. But Lost in Space, uh, you know, was one of the earliest of those, I believe. Although I think uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea came before that. Um, but what I was trying to say is that the, the first season was re- really serious uh, television for the most part. There wasn't a lot of the, the bubble-headed booby uh, of Dr. Smith and the robot and the, and the Will as being this the three-person team-up um, like there was in the later seasons. And, you know, this was a, a really well-done show. They had some interesting stories, uh, the characters. There was a, It was kind of a good ensemble piece. And there was a lot of stuff going on there that were, you know, they found alien civilizations. They had crashed on this planet, and it had looked like aliens. They, they found remnants of, of old civilizations there, tried to repair their ships so they could get, you know, get off. Uh, I think I got a little ahead of myself anyway. Well, if you're not familiar with the first story, the Dr. Smith being aboard the Jupiter 2 sets it off course due to his additional weight and the robot going haywire, and this this basically causes the, the ship to, to go way off course and not ending up at Alpha Centauri, which which was their destination, but some other planet, and they lose track of them. And, yeah, so they're uh, lost track of, and then they end up being lost in space. You know, the show lasted for three seasons. The second season was still pretty good, but they, they turned into losing track of the other characters, and they started focusing just strictly on... Uh, Will the robot and Doctor Smith, and Doctor Smith turned into from he starts out as this uh, secret agent, uh, enemy, bad guy um, to begin with, but then he turns into this just you know weak spined, cowardly character that gets in the the Robinson family into all kinds of trouble. But I grew up with that uh, show along with Star Trek, of course, and and it was it was a lot of fun. I mean they they were being the Robinson family out there and these uncharted planets out flying around in the Jupiter 2 with a robot and all that stuff, laser pistols. It was it was cool stuff, and I think uh, a lot of the early season, the first season especially, still is fun to watch today. And these also are available on uh, DVD, which is, which is just great, you know, for people that haven't seen this. So that's Lost in Space. That's my brief uh, few minutes of talking about that show. Uh, I'd like to say uh, also that... Uh, 
I didn't really announce which shows I was going to be talking about, so there's not a lot of commentary from listeners about these particular shows. But if you'd like to make a comment, uh, either through email or audio, please send it in to the show. Uh, the email, again, is treksf at gmail.com. You can hook a MP3 audio file to the, your email, and I will probably play it on a show. You can also call the voicemail line, which is 206-88-TREX, with an S on the end of it, yes. And leave a comment there, and I will be playing that. If you have a comment about any of the shows I'm talking about this week, or just about sci-fi in general, something about a movie you've seen, anything, uh, send it into the show, and we will try to include it. Okay, now let's get into uh, another another uh, classic television uh this one's not maybe quite as sci-fi oriented, but a little bit more sci-fi adventure oriented. This is a series in the 70s It started, uh, one that was very successful, one that a lot of people enjoyed watching, was was probably one of the more popular ones of the, the shows that I'm going to be talking about this week as far as ratings and, and how well it did in that. But we'll play the uh, theme song to this show, and then I'll come back and talk about it. Uh, you know that that theme song. I think a lot of people know, even if they're not all that familiar or haven't seen a lot of these, a lot of this television show. That is the theme song to the Six Million Dollar Man, starring uh, Lee Majors as Steve Austin. The, yes, the Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Man. Okay, now uh, now this series started in uh, January of 1974 on ABC, and and the the way this one started in, in that time time era uh, and maybe not as much these these days they did a lot of uh, what they called movie of the weeks or television movie of the weeks uh, this this was on abc is where it originally was but and the way there were a few things purposes for those movie of the weeks one one that got used quite a bit was they turned into being um, pilot episodes for television series now the six million dollar man the, the first thing that was ever aired for was one of these uh, 90 minute like pilot movies and i believe they made a few other ones after that before they went to a full-blown series this was an easy way for a network to to test something out see what people thought about it and then you know see if there's a market out there see if there's an interest and if the ratings were high enough it they would you know basically you know start working on uh, a whole a full-blown tv series and write a lot of scripts and and that now everyone probably or a lot of people know about the story of you know Lee Majors, the six million dollar man. He was a a test pilot, an astronaut that was in a, a horrible. Um, he was test test piloting a, a new aircraft, a reentry vehicle, and it crashed, uh, which which basically damaged his legs, his right arm, and his eye. One of his eyes, I think it was his right eye, maybe his left. Who knows? But. And what they did at the time, and this this is again nowadays seems kind of simplistic a little bit, I guess to, to some degree. Even though people with, you know, that lose limbs and things are still not walking around and running uh, like Steve Austin. But the idea between with this show was that there was a, sort of a secret government uh, agency that had developed a bionic limb technology that enabled them to. They were looking for more or less quote unquote a volunteer. And when you know Steve, who Steve Austin Lee Major's character was was badly injured in this accident, without really even asking him, they basically put him back together again with these mechanical parts, which 
once all all was said and done, you couldn't tell. I mean, his arm, his legs, his eye, everything looked normal again. However, now he was, you know, the, the cost of fixing him was $6 million, and he was uh, much more enhanced and, and much more capable of doing certain things than, than an average person could do. He could run fast. He could run 60 miles an hour. He could lift things with one arm, you know, real real easily. He could break down a door with the arm. I mean, you know, the, the obvious things is he had, um, you know, these these amazing uh, limbs that were that were put on him, even though the rest of his body was still basically organic and human, and he had an eye that could see very far distances and microscopic to some degree and a lot of things like that. So, and uh, it was it was a great concept for a television series because they they basically draft him. And the the thing I remember about the early times of this is that he was very reluctant. He really did not like what they did to him. He really hated it, and and that shows up in the first movie, and it shows up in the early episodes of the series and the and those first movies that they did, where he's he does not want to cooperate with them. He's he's kind of a lone wolf, a bit of a character like that. He's a test pilot. He's he's landed and gone to the moon. He he's really strived all his life on his own abilities, and now they've they basically turned him into this cyborg or this mechanical man. Um, that, that's an interesting little uh, thing. The the actual idea for this was was based on a book called Cyborg, I think it was, by a, an author named Martin Caden. You have to look that up on the net, but um, that I actually read that story, and it, it follows it fairly closely, the, the original premise and idea. But the, um, you know, there's this main character named Oster, Oscar Goldman that each week would send Steve off on some mission that he had to do, and you know, eventually they, they become friends, and there's a mutual respect, and they he, they work together pretty well. But at first, Steve was was not happy with what happened to him, and he was uh, very resistant to the situation. But this was uh, a a real fun show. You know, probably more like I said earlier, uh, an adventure type show rather than a sci-fi fantasy show. But there were later on in some of the episodes, they got into a little more fantastical type and science fiction elements uh, for the show. They, they ran into Bigfoot and, and aliens and, and things like that. So And eventually it spun off into another television show called The Bionic Woman, which was Steve Austin ends up with his girlfriend, and lo and behold, she gets in a bad accident, actually a parachuting accident, and ends up being uh, repaired by Oscar and turned into uh, a very similar sort of female counterpart, counterpart to Steve. Um, and the, these shows were really, really popular at the time. Did really good for ABC, Lee Major's career. Uh, Lindsay Wagner played the Bionic Woman. And they'll they'll always be forever associated, just like William Shatner is with uh, the Kirk character. They'll be forever associated with the Bionic people and Bionic television shows. And I, they were a lot of fun to watch. I mean, it was. I don't think I missed one of these when they were airing. And it lasted for about four years uh, from, uh, like I said, from 73, I think. Let me look again. Sorry, that was uh, January 74 to uh, spring, March of 1978 is how long the $6 million man lasted. I actually had thought it had lasted a little longer than that. Well, they did eventually do sort of subsequent a couple of TV movies which weren't that good. So that that I guess you could count. Um, and, and this is one of the rare television shows. I, I'm not sure. I'm going to have to look up real quickly and, and see if this is out on DVD or not yet. Let me look at that and I'll, I'll get back to you here. Hang on one sec. Yeah, I, uh, I just checked Amazon.com. I thought that was the case. This is uh, this is one of the rare shows, actually, for this week. I think uh, I think is the only one that I'm going to talk about that's not available yet on DVD, which is which is rather odd. Although I think I have heard that it should be out sometime very soon, so that'll be that'll be good. That'll be good to see. So, Six Million Dollar Man, another fun show from the past. Hey everyone, this is Scott Johnson from the Extra Life Radio Show. You're listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. With my friend Rico. Now the next show, I'm going to do two more. This is uh, second to the last one, so we'll have, I guess, that'll be five total for this this podcast for TV shows of the past. Look back, a look back at TV shows from the past. Um, the next one, we're getting into the, the 80s now, early 80s. And this uh, this show 
again, maybe, you know, not truly sci-fi, more a little fantasy kind of thing. But this probably of the shows I'm, I'm talking about this week, to me, this show was the most fun. Had the most lighthearted elements to it, but it was still, there were still, you know, drama and action and things like that. But this was just a real, real fun show. And let me play the, uh, the little musical theme to it and maybe you'll uh, recognize it. So we'll play that and then I'll come back and talk about it. That's the uh, that's the theme song to uh, the Greatest American Hero, which was a, a superhero type tale, but a little different than your usual uh, guy in tights running around uh, doing uh, heroic and good deeds for people. This show basically focused. There was a character named uh, a school teacher character named Ralph Hinckley, who ends up finding uh, a basically they call the, a super suit, a costume that some aliens leave behind out in the desert. And what they find out is that Ralph, when he puts on this red, uh, odd-looking suit, is that he can do a lot of the same kind of things, basically, that Superman can do. He can fly, he's fast, he's strong. Um, and the, But the interesting tale about this, or the twist on it, this was a Stephen J. Canal, or if that's how you pronounce his last name, he wrote and, and created this show, who he did a lot of shows at that in that time frame in the 80s. He did the A-Team, which is another really big popular show. Um, but the twist about this show was that, that Ralph got this, this super suit, and the, the instruction manual or the guidebook for this for this suit and how to use it and how to do these abilities and powers, they, they lost. It, it falls out of the little case, and it's lost out in the desert. So him and the... Robert Culp, who was also on the show as the character of an FBI agent named Bill Maxwell, they they basically have to go through episodes and episodes and, and learning um, sort of by trial and error how to use this suit. Now, there's a couple other things. The, the red super suit uh, that, that lets Ralph be the greatest American hero, which I'm not, I'm trying to recall uh, if they've ever, if they ever actually said that phrase or line in the show that he was the greatest American hero. I don't think that they did. Maybe somebody could write in and let me know if they ever did that in one of the episodes, if anyone kind of dubbed him that in, in, in actual the episode itself. So, But, um, you know, they, they had to learn how to use this suit through trial and error, and that led to all kinds of sort of humorous situations where, you know, Ralph would have to do some new ability or something new with the suit. Like he ends up being able to, uh, he can go sort of temporarily invisible when he's wearing the suit. And they learn about that uh, at one point in an episode when they really need to to kind of slip into a place, and it's it's funny because the Robert Culp, Bill Maxwell, he's sort of the comic relief, and he gets all worked up every time Ralph goes invisible. He says it gives him like the heebie-jeebies or something like that, which I found kind of funny. And just the rapport between um, Robert Culp, William, and William Cat. William Cat played the Ralph Hinckley, the teacher, greatest American hero character, and Robert Culp, Culp excuse me. <coughs> is Bill Maxwell, the the rapport between those two main characters what was what, to me, made this show uh, something special, something really nice, 
nice to watch and a lot of fun. There were there was another character, uh, Pam, I believe, was the character's name. She was a lawyer, uh, played by Connie Selica, which was the girlfriend and ends up marrying Ralph, I think, in one of the later years of the uh, TV series. Now, this uh, this show was was fairly short lived. It only lasted for three seasons, um, from 1981 to 1983, kind of spring to spring. They started it. Uh, in the later year, the, all three seasons are now, I think all of them are all out now on now DVD, so there you you can catch up with them that way. But there was a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff in this show. Uh, Ralph always, you know, he wore the suit a lot of times underneath his clothes. You know, when he he you'd see him try to jump in someplace to get changed, and he'd always get his pants caught on things. And he, you know, he's sort of a klutzy superhero. And when he flew, it wasn't it wasn't really nice, perfect like Superman. It was. It was sort of a send-up of like an average everyday guy getting uh, getting these abilities and powers from this suit, and and really not really being all that comfortable uh, in that character, you know, or being able to uh, be comfortable in the role of being a superhero. And the, the twist on it always was was that the Bill Maxwell, the FBI guy, would have rather have you know been doing the hero stuff, but the the suit itself would only work on Ralph. Ralph uh, was the only one that when he put the suit on it, it gets. I think he loses it a couple times in the the course of the series, and other people try it on, and they find out that the suit only works on Ralph, so that that um, he can't really walk away from it. And it was a really really fun show, a, a real good show, a lot of uh, humor in it, a lot of wacky kind of situations, I guess. Uh, but it's uh, it, it's a I have a lot of fond memories of watching this show, and really enjoyed it when it was on. And, and I also have uh, some of the DVDs now. I'd like to get all of the seasons. I just have the first season so far, but. I'm sure I'll pick them all up eventually. So, The Greatest American Hero, cool show, cool, really good actors in it, and I recommend you check that one out as well. Okay, the the final uh, television sci-fi fantasy adventure slash uh, whatever television show I want to look at for this podcast, so we'll be doing five, I guess, total, excuse me, is um, another fun show. This one was uh, primarily, I guess, uh, we're into the 90s, yeah. This is in the 90s now for this show. This show was was really, uh, I think, had one of the most interesting concepts for a television show. And I think that might have been its ultimate downfall was that it, it, it had such a broad uh, idea for a TV show. But the neat thing about this one, kind of like Twilight Zone Outer Limits, is that you could do almost anything in any particular uh, episode. You, you, it was really, really open. And without talking about it too much before giving too much more away, I'll play the theme song uh, for this television series, and then we'll come back and talk about it. What if you found a portal to a parallel universe? What if you could slide into a thousand different worlds? Where it's the same year, and you're the same person, but everything else is different. And what if you can't find your way home? That's the that's the theme song to the television show Sliders, which they uh, which aired um, it aired in 1995, uh, the springtime of 1995. I'm noticing with most of these shows, they were most of them not didn't start out in the fall. They started out as sort of midseason replacements or tryout TV shows. It lasted from 1995 to uh, the year 2000, actually, where it ended up, I guess, in the last season or so, was on the Sci-Fi Channel. Now the basic uh, idea of sliders, for those that aren't real familiar with this this one, is that it was uh, there was this sort of genius. Uh, he was in I guess late high school, early college. I'm trying to remember exactly how old he was supposed to be, but the character of Quinn Mallory, which I thought was a really cool name for for a main character, Quinn. Um, but he's basically a genius, and he he creates basically a wormhole to parallel or alternate dimensions parallel earths with a device this little timer device and all this equipment he rigs up in his basement which i always thought was kind of cool too because i do a lot of tinkering and things in my basement 
but Quinn, uh, he creates this this wormhole, which he thinks uh, at first will just allow him to sort of go from world to world and, and come right back. Now, through different circumstances, and I don't want to give too much away of the pilot episode, but uh, a couple other characters end up joining him. But what ends up happening is there there is a... Um, a problem that occurs, and and it doesn't quite go as as Quinn, of course, and as most of these shows, you know, you, things don't quite go like in Lost in Space as you would plan them. If they did go as planned, the show wouldn't probably be as good or interesting. But what happens is Quinn and uh, three other people end up being caught up into this wormhole and sliding around from parallel Earth to parallel Earth, and they don't really they can't control the situation they can't, there are basically an infinite number of parallel earths out there and each week they would slide to a different universe or a different parallel world where things would just be sort of slightly different almost like the mirror mirror universe on star trek where they would go to an earth where uh say germany did not lose the second world war and and the basically the world was being still controlled by nazis for example or they would go to another parallel world where uh, the the era of the Wild West and, and having a gun and walking around and challenging people to a duel never never stopped. It was it was continuing up through modern times. Or they would slip to another world and there was some major disease that had happened and, and most of the world's population had been decimated and they were you know, each week that would happen and their their timer mechanism that would get them from world to world would basically, uh, it would give them uh, a countdown. You know, they would end up on a parallel Earth, and it would say, oh, you have two days on this Earth, or you would have 24 hours on it. It would be sort of sort of uh, a random amount of time, you know, usually a day or two, something like that. Now, the main characters, uh, Jerry O'Connell was Quinn Mallory, uh, John Rhys-Davies was uh, Professor Arturo, and uh, there was another character named Rembrandt, Played by Cleveland Derricks, I think is how you pronounce his name, and Sabrina Lloyd was it was the girl along basically. Uh, Lloyd was her name, and she was sort of a computer expert. She was a sort of a, sort of a girlfriend, a friend of of Quinn's. But this show was was a lot of fun. They the, some of the writers that were on this show actually were writers that had come from Star Trek series like The Next Generation. Uh, one gentleman named Tracy Torme worked on Sliders, who also worked on uh, TNG. So they, they, they did uh, a lot of neat concepts with this with this show each week, and it was almost like those episodes like Mirror, Mirror, City on the Edge of Forever, where each week you could have sort of a an alternate universe, alternate Earth going on that the, the group of the four of them would end up visiting and how they would have to deal with that situation. Now, a few other interesting things would occur over the episodes that they would um, run into different situations, like, for example... On some of these parallel Earths, they would run into their their doubles or their counterparts. What they would usually find was that each world would contain uh, sort of a slightly different version of each of their characters. Sometimes they were there, sometimes they had maybe died in an accident, something had happened, but there were quite a few episodes where they were, you know, Quinn would, for example, would run into uh, another version of Quinn. Like, I, I remember the one with the, you know, worldwide disease problem that was wiping out everyone was... The, the alternate Quinn on that world was actually the one that had sort of accidentally created that disease and sort of the, it was up to the Quinn from, you know, the main character Quinn to help that with, with that problem. Almost like a quantum leap situation where each week they didn't always solve the whole situation of what was going on in the earth, of that parallel earth, but they would tend to try to leave it in a better way than they found it. It, it wasn't stopping them from leaving, like Quantum Leap, where, where Sam Beckett had to, to solve a certain problem before he could leap out of that time frame or that era. But the, the sliders, as they called themselves, would end up you know, finding themselves in a situation where they would come into direct contact with oh, whatever was going on in this world and what was wrong with it and why uh, you know, they maybe had to fix it. A few times, I remember, they ran into some worlds that were actually not that bad, and they were... Um, they were thinking of staying there. What would happen, the, the premise was, if they didn't hop through the little wormhole that it would appear when the timer went off, they would be stuck uh, on that on that Earth, on that particular dimension of Earth, or that parallel Earth, for, uh, for years. And there was some cycle to it, or whatever, in 20 years, <clears throat> that, the, uh, that the wormhole would reappear and they could go on again. But effectively, they'd be marooned or stuck there. And they were tempted a few times to, to stay. 
again, a great concept for a television show. I mean, just think about uh, all the possibilities of each week you basically get to rewrite some kind of portion of history or change the world in some way. Some ways were much more dramatic than others, some much more subtle. Sometimes Earth, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, i got to get a drink. Uh, yeah, it's better. Um, you know, they were occasionally tempted. You know, some Earths that they ran into were not that bad, and they were occasionally tempted, but their main goal was to uh, to get back home, to find their original Earth and find uh, find home again. You know, Quinn kind of dedicated himself to getting the people home now. The unfortunate thing, the first couple, two, three seasons of Sliders were really, I thought, really well done. They did a good job, but the, some of the characters slowly started to get a little, um, you know, unhappy with with the with the storylines that they were bringing in, and John Rhys Davies especially w- was was unhappy with the direction. I mean, it, in the middle of the series or so, it did turn into uh, they were copying a lot of popular movies that were out. They had a show about tornadoes around the time that movie Twister came out. And they just started to really lose touch with with what the show was about. So some of the actors eventually ended up off the show. Actually, by the end of the end of the series, unfortunately, the only character was the the black guy, um, Cleveland uh, Rembrandt. Cleveland Derricks was the only character. Rembrandt was still on the uh, the series as one of the original sliders. So that yeah, was kind of unfortunate. You know, it's uh, ended it up in the last year or so on the Sci Fi Channel and the. Uh, the storylines just weren't as strong and weren't as tight in those last couple of years. But the first couple of years, which are available on DVD also, are, are really, really good. And th- this is this is a neat, the neat thing about Sliders, I thought, in a lot of, well, especially like Outer Limits, uh, I guess, is one of the other ones this week that I talked about. Uh, you could have one episode that might be so-so and you kind of go, oh, that was kind of a dumb idea for a parallel Earth. But then the next week they could come up with something really amazing. So... Week to week, uh, you were into a different situation where something, anything new could happen. And it was uh, it was interesting. The, the funny thing was always when they were running into doubles of themselves. And it, it seemed like it always turned out that their their counterpart on these parallel Earths wasn't quite as nice and as good as as they were. So that, that was always, you know, it was a lot of the mirror-mirror type effect from Star Trek on, on this show. But I, I really, really liked it. I thought the acting and the story writing, especially early on, was, was strong. The, the characters were interesting, and it was another one of those shows that was, was real fun. They ended up having a, kind of an enemy, the Cro-Mags, which was another uh, kind of a alternate human. Uh, it was supposed to be Cro-Magnon man that had evolved on a parallel Earth, and they were uh, they were also had the ability to slide just like the sliders could. So that, that presented a lot of problems for them. But this show runs occasionally on Sci-Fi Channel also, too. And you can also get the DVDs. So sliders, check it out. So that's uh, that's going to wrap it up for the the sci-fi, past sci-fi, fantasy, adventure tele- television talk for uh, this podcast. I'm going to still talk about a few other things, but Suey the Outer Limits, Lost in Space, uh, Six Million Dollar Man, Greatest American Hero, and Sliders. I hope uh, that those brought back some memories for some of you. That you you know you probably a lot of you listening to this show have seen a lot of those shows. You know, send me your comments. Tell me what you think about that stuff. Uh, yeah, I hope that those uh, shows brought back some memories for you guys. Please, uh, definitely, uh, guys, gals, podcasting listeners in listener podcasting land, send me uh, send me your comments on that. Send me uh, comments about shows that you you enjoyed, and uh, I'll try to comment on those in a future show. Again, treksf at gmail.com would be the email to send those comments to. Now I'm going to take a little bit of a break, come back <clears throat> and talk about a, uh, a real neat little collectible that uh, a nice listener was uh, kind enough to send to me. So we'll be right back with that. The Treks in Sci-Fi Podcast. Okay, yes, Rico is back. Uh, hopefully we'll, voice will hang in here for the rest of this show. Now uh, I got a real nice uh, couple of emails from a listener named Johnny who is actually, he says he's from uh, Brazil, and but he's living in Japan right now. And Johnny, and I think I've mentioned this on, on the past, one of the past shows, maybe last week's uh, mid, midweek uh, casual show. But Johnny, uh, he's in Japan right now, and he was nice enough to send me a, it's a version of the tricorder as seen in the original Star Trek series, but it, what it is, is it's a collectible that comes when you buy in Japan. You buy the, uh, 
the DVDs of the original series over there. A lot of times they, they package these things up uh, differently in, in foreign countries, sometimes a lot nicer than the United States. Yeah, I know I talked about this last time. But Johnny actually got, I got this, uh, want to let you know that I did get the tricorder. I, I'm really, really uh, grateful. I, I really, really appreciate it. It's very, very cool. And there'll be some pictures in the podcast notes section and on the collection, the main collection page off of the uh, the website. If you want to see it, I took some pictures today and posted those up. It's it's a real neat little item. It, it's very much shaped and looks like the TOS, the original tricorders, on the outside. But then when you open up the doors on the inside, it takes a few batteries. You can uh, use it as an AM, FM radio. There is a, a dial to turn it on and off, a dial to change the volume, the band... Uh, from AM to FM and to tune it. You, you actually uh, do most of those controls from the middle of the section of the tricorder, which you might be able to see in the pictures. The top uh, section has some lights that you can switch on, and the bottom compartment is what holds the batteries. And this is a, a really neat little item. I, I just wish in the United States that these guys that made these DVD sets over here would uh, they would include this kind of cool uh, merchandise. I remember... Uh, a few sets have done these kind of things. I think the Matrix, you got a little bust of uh, Keanu Reeves, Neo, if you bought the Ultimate Matrix set. And there's a few other little things like that. Like, I think the Office-based DVD, which is a pretty funny movie, comes with uh, a stapler and, and a couple other little uh, pins and things like that based uh, from the movie. But most of the time, we're pretty bare bones for the DVD sets in the United States, it seems. But there's... Um, I guess the Star Trek sets in Japan, the DVD sets, the next generation comes with a little mini tricorder that looks like the tricorders on next gen, and that tricorder actually functions. It can be used as a remote control, like a universal remote for your TV, which is also a neat little thing. And I, I really, really appreciate you sending me this, Johnny. Again, it's it's a cool little collectible, not something that most people are going to be able to find. You know, you can't order this online anywhere. I guess you could probably find one perhaps on eBay sometime. Or if you have a nice friend in Japan, talk to them. Maybe they can hook you up. But, uh, Johnny, again, thanks a lot for sending me this collectible. I really, really uh, appreciate it. All right. I think that's going to just about do it for this week. Got to get this uh, edited up, get it posted. Um, I'm going to still do a midweek show probably Wednesday or so this coming week. Next weekend show, I will be going back uh, and looking at a Star Trek episode as the main topic I haven't really decided. I'm, I'm kind of bouncing between doing a, a TNG or maybe it even a Deep Space Nine a review for next week. I haven't decided on which particular episode yet. Got a few ideas. Uh, I'll narrow it down, and, and probably by the midweek uh, Wednesday show I'll announce that. So if anyone wants to send a comment, listen on that show, and I'll tell you which show that I'm going to be talking about. Or you can always check out the forums at uh, treksf.com take a look there i usually post what i'm going to be talking about uh in that in the podcast section on the forums again uh check out the collection i posted up some new pictures again today got a few new items up there some harry potter wands uh some gentle giants star wars statues uh one of general grievous that i got which is pretty cool item of obviously the tricorder uh from the dvd set that i got that's up uh, so that's uh the collection is growing, which is always fun, which is always nice. And uh, I just want to say, you know, this is show, uh, what are we at, 31. And I, I'm really appreciating everyone, the emails, the the posts on the forums, and everyone's uh, good thoughts uh, about this podcast, Treks and Sci-Fi. I'm trying to um, spread out a little bit about what I'm doing, you know, not always Star Trek. Uh, Star Wars, I, I looked at a few weeks ago, some of these looking at past sci-fi shows, just try to spread things out a little bit. Uh, primarily still sticking to Star Trek, but trying to draw in a, you know people with different interests a little. Um, but I, I do do definitely appreciate. You know, there's tons of podcasts out there, lots of choices, and if you're listening to this show, that really means a lot to me. I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope I'm bringing back some fine memories. I've had lots of emails from people that grew up on, the, especially on the original Star Trek series, and. They've said how, how much the, listening to my show is really bringing back those kind of memories and it makes them want to pick up uh, and watch the DVDs and, and you know maybe clue their kids on uh, what, what good sci-fi is all about. So, so that stuff, uh, it really means a lot, and it helps me uh, keep going doing the show. I appreciate it. I uh, hope my voice wasn't too uh, froggy or scraggly this week. Uh, it's um, 
living in Michigan, folks. What can I say? So we're going to sign off now, edit this up, get it posted in a while. So I want everyone to have a good week. Uh, hopefully uh, you stay healthy as much as you can. i got to go drink a lot more juice. And we'll be talking to you in the middle of the week for our middle of the week show. Until then, everyone, have a good, uh, good time. Bye-bye. This has been a Rick Dosti production. This podcast, copyright 2006, all rights reserved.